This morning, we are, we are blessed to, to be in your presence, to know that you love us, to know that you are love, to know that you cared about us even before you created anything, and that your eyes and your love are always upon us, even today. So, Father, we pray that as we continue our time of worship in your word, that your spirit would move and work that he would touch our lives, that he would bring encouragement where we need it, that he, would, that he would bring maybe reproof where it's also needed. And Father, we pray that we would be sensitive to your spirit's leadership because he would not let us in, he would not desire that any of us would just listen and do nothing today. His desire is that we would grow to be more like our Savior, Jesus Christ, or that his desire would be that we would give our heart to Christ to be Lord and Savior if we've never done that. So, Father, we commit this time to you as we finish out this, this hour of worship. Father, we pray that, that you would speak to our hearts in very clear tones. And Father, we'll give you glory and praise and honor for all you're going to do. Glorify your Son, Jesus Christ, not only in your word, but in our lives in this hour. For we pray these things in Christ's most precious name. Amen. We're talking about vintage Christianity, vintage Christianity, and we're talking about today the wisdom factor. Remember, I, I, I told you that, that we, I named this vintage Christianity when we're studying the book of James because the book of James is perhaps uh, one of the very oldest Christian letters that the church has. It was the, the half-brother of Jesus writing to Christians who had very little of any training, had, had very little information about their Christian life. Life. And so very early on in, the, in that first Christian century, James writes this letter to a group of Jewish believers and he, and he just wants to encourage them in discipleship. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to live as a Christian in a world that really didn't like them, in a world that wanted to kill them, in a world that was taking their jobs and their homes and, their, and everything that was important to them away uh, because they were followers of the way? And, and so this is, this is as vintage as it gets for the Christian life. I mean, if you want to get way back to the very basics from the time the church was birthed in that first Christian century, this is, this is the place you start here in the book of James. And so we're talking vintage Christianity, and we're just kind of walking through, um, through this book together. And so that brings us to the, the, the end of chapter 3 today. James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. And I will tell Tell you that we're going to take a hiatus now for just a few weeks after today because of the church calendar and things that are happening. And we're going to come back at, in, in July, and we will finish then the second half. We're finishing the first half of James. We will come back, and we will, and we will finish the second half uh, in, the, in, uh, the, in the coming month uh, the, the, during the summer. Uh, but when it, comes to, uh, when it comes to thinking of what wise is, and if I were to, told, if I were to ask you, what's your mental image of a wise man? Uh, or a wise person, um, would you likely come up with the cliche of an old guy with a long beard sitting on a, on a mountain peak somewhere? Kind of like the BC comics? You know, I, I, I really thought I should probably have gone back and found a, a, an old uh, BC 
comic strip where they would go and and the wise man was always sitting up there on a on a you know this really sharp pinnacle uh, and people were you know climbing on their hands and knees to come up to find what he would say uh, that might be what we think about um, at least it is in the cartoons or maybe you think of King Solomon who who wrote the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament who was who's who's called the wisest man uh, because he asked God for wisdom and and God gave that to him and, and was the wisest man perhaps who ever lived uh, and the Proverbs are a collection of, of uh, maybe the best way to say it is pithy statements um, that when you hear them, especially if you're listening to them, maybe on a CD or an MP3 player or, you know, or in your car driving along, you're listening to them and you say, wow, that was short, but that was powerful. That made a lot of sense. Um, that, had, that seemed to have a lot of wisdom behind it. Uh, and so there's this little sound bites that, that, that help you say, you know what, that, that makes good sense to me. Maybe I, could, maybe I should pay attention to that. Uh, because we tend to think about wisdom as a certain kind of knowledge that that's articulated maybe by a certain kind or a certain in a certain way. A man by the name of Bill Gothard. Some of you have heard his name. He's been around for a long time. Uh, his his definition of wisdom I, I gave to you at the beginning here of your sermon notes. He said wisdom is seeing life from God's perspective. Seeing life from God's perspective. And that's not a bad definition necessarily of wisdom. Uh, it's uh, you know if I'm gonna if I'm gonna look at what's true about life, then I kind of have to see it from the way God. God sees it because that's really what's true about life. And so trying to see God, God's perspective and everything about my life. Uh, but I want you to understand, although that's a true statement, that wisdom is not this complex, unattainable type of thing uh, that we tend to make it out to be. Because even if I took that, you know, seeing life from God's perspective, that might seem a little out there. You know, well, how do I know if I'm seeing it from God's perspective? And how, how do I know that's what he wants me to understand? And, and it's not all that difficult to figure out. Um, in fact, wisdom uh, is is not unattainable at all. It's very attainable because the Bible says it is free for the asking. We began this study in the book of James back in chapter 1 and verse 5. And remember, James says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should do what? He should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be what? Given to him. Well, that doesn't sound so hard, does it? God, I don't really know that I have wisdom in this matter. Could you give me wisdom? He says yes, and and then I know that I have God's wisdom because he promises that. So if you want wisdom, you ask God and he gives it to you. James says that in chapter 1, and now in chapter 3... He begins to talk about that kind of wisdom. He begins to talk about what it is that God would give to us. What is how it, kind of a definition of wisdom, but more of the attributes of the type of wisdom that God would give to us. And he teaches us, James does, how to put it into work in our lives. Uh, and so there are three aspects of wisdom that he shares with us today that I want us to look at. And uh, as we finish out chapter 3 of the book, of James. So, in your sermon notes, uh, I want you to see three aspects of wisdom. First of all, I want you to notice that wisdom isn't just something you know, it's something that you do. Wisdom is always going to be something that you do. God is not interested just giving us knowledge for knowledge's sake. 
He gives us that knowledge. He gives us something to know in order that we can do something that we need to do that would glorify him. Notice what verse 13 says. It says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. And so, James says immediately, wisdom is is more than knowing what's best to do. Wisdom is doing what is best to do. And there's a big difference in that. Let me me give you some examples here for a second. And I don't want to... That's, I, I gave you Bill Gothard's definition of wisdom, and some of you will understand uh, if you've paid any attention to the news even this past year, early in this year. Um, Bill Gothard's been around for a long time. Bill Gothard started uh, what became known as basic youth conflict seminars way back in the 60s and 70s and, and started filling, uh, you know, um, Arenas. I mean, we're talking big things. You know, Beth Moore was just here in Stockton Friday and Saturday and, and filled a good portion of the arena downtown. Bill Gothard's been doing that for a long, long time. It, it later morphed into from, from basic youth conflicts into basic life conflicts uh, seminars for adults. And, and, and literally, people raised their kids on the things that he was saying and, and, uh, and relationships were restored. And it was, it was really a wonderful thing. But... Um, but he was he was he was removed from from his organization earlier this year because of because of um, of indiscretion or uh, alleged indiscretions. And I don't know whether he did or didn't. But I go with me back a few years. If you were to go back, oh, say maybe thirty years ago, and you were to say, Bill, I I I I'm in ministry. If I were to call him and say, Bill, I'm in I'm in ministry. I'm a pastor and. And uh, but you know what? There's all these these really pretty young ladies that are around me. These ladies and and um, and and I I just you know I I could do inappropriate things with him and probably never get caught. Do you think he would have said, you know, Terrell, that's a good thing to do? No, because he knew the right thing to do. So he knew what it was, but that's different than doing it. Thirty years ago, we could have called Bill Clinton and could have told him the same thing. Maybe you would have called and said, "You know, Bill, I'm, 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 I have this. I'm running for, I'm, I'm, I'm in office. I'm a politician, or I'm in business, and and this is my business. And and I have this, I have these young interns, and one of these young interns is kind of flirting with me, and and." I don't know where it'll go anywhere, but nobody would ever know. Should I should I just let this thing develop into an affair? I think Bill Clinton would have said, "Are you kidding me? Don't do that." I don't think he would have hesitated for a moment to say, "No, don't do it." Ken Lay, remember Ken Lay from the Enron stuff? Go back thirty years. You ask Ken Lay, "Hey." Ken, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm well to do. I got a lot of money. But you know what? I could cook the books just a little bit and I could really get wealthy. I mean, over the moon wealthy. And maybe, could, chances, I won't even get caught. Should I do that, Ken? He would have said, You're crazy if you do that. 
Yet all three of those guys, even though they would have told you what you shouldn't do, they would have known what was the wise thing to do. Now, one of them probably did the wise thing when they were faced with that. And so we have to understand that God is not interested just in our knowledge. He wants the what we're going to do with it part of it. That's where the wisdom comes in. It's knowledge and wisdom are very different. Knowledge is knowing the right thing to do. Wisdom is doing the right thing to do. And one's much harder than the other one in terms of putting it into practice. And so, you know, um, James says, if you're wise, you show it by your what? By your good life and by your good deeds, by what you do. And so what he's, what he's giving to us is what I'm going to call the big idea today. The big idea of this passage. And every pastor does that. I give you a big idea. I don't always just tell you what, what the big idea is uh, in the way I'm going to do it today. But today I thought I really probably just need to lay it out just as plain as I know how to do it. Um, the big idea today, and I want you to write this down, that is wisdom is better seen than heard. That's what, that's what these verses from verses 13 to 18 are about. Wisdom is better seen than heard. I want you to say that out loud with me, okay? Wisdom is better seen than heard. Now say it one more time like you really mean it. Wisdom is better seen than heard. That's what James is talking about. That it's not just knowledge, it is knowledge that is now put into action. Secondly, Wisdom is not just something you do. Wisdom is quiet and unassuming. It's quiet and unassuming. Back in verse 13, the last part of that verse again says, By deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. In other words, James is saying that a wise person doesn't have to advertise their brilliance. They only have to model it. Just model, just model what you know and what you're doing. Because I want you to notice these next verses, starting in verse 14. He goes on to say, But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly and uh, unspiritual, uh, excuse me, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, you find disorder and every evil practice. Envy and selfish ambition are the opposite of humility. James says that God's wisdom is, is clothed in humility. You might want to under that word, underline that word humility in your Bible. That's what clothes wisdom. And if you find that you're involved in envy, or you are involved in, in selfish ambition, then what you're trying to do is the opposite of God's wisdom. Because envy is the enemy of wisdom. It is always its enemy. Um, when you become envious, you begin to lose perspective. It's like this green-eyed monster that just takes over your life and, and everything gets distorted. Envy does not inspire you to do something good for anybody else. It goads you, rather, into doing something to make yourself look better and, and to, to have more than somebody else. And it's been said that envy designs the darts that failure throws at the successful. Have you ever been envious? Now, I know this is going to surprise you, but pastors struggle with this. 
I know because I are one. One of my favorite cartoons, and I, you know, when this came out, when this cartoon came out was way before computers, way before PowerPoint and worship, you know, screens and things like that. And so I had it, had it in a magazine, and it came out and, and it's gone, and I can't find it, but Dick Lapine is a is a Christian cartoon. It still is today, but uh, this was a cartoon. It's one of those cartoons that it's in your head and you can't get rid of it. I looked for it and looked for it for the last couple, three weeks, and, and pastors would, would refer to it, but they don't have it either. <laughs> None of us kept it. We, didn't, we weren't smart enough to do that. Uh, but what it is, it was back when Promise Keepers had, had come out, was were early, early on in Promise Keepers' life. And uh, Promise Keepers is kind of like the it's kind of like the 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 Beth Moore uh, things today, but for men, and they still are. And uh, and you see this picture, and he has this stadium because they fill literally they filled stadiums. Like the start, the first one was at uh, Mile High Stadium in Denver, and places just packed out, like for a, a football game of men there there to worship. And and the guy is there's a guy preaching. And then there's this big thought bubble over top of the whole stadium. And it's coming up from everybody who's a pastor. And you know what? They're, they're all thinking exactly the same thing. Well, I could do better than that guy. Really? That's who's preaching? I could preach better than him. Why aren't I up there? When is it going to be my turn to be up there on the, on the, in, the, in the big stadium like that? Why, everybody thinks that, don't they? You know what that is? It's jealousy. That's envy. God, when's it my turn to do this? I could, I could teach that class better. I could sing that solo better. I could play that piano. Well, I couldn't play that piano, period. But I could, you know, we, we feel that way. Don't we? That's what envy does. Instead of saying, man, I'm glad we've got people like Annette and, and we have people like Evelyn who can play the way that they do and Betty who can sing the way that she does and, and people who teach in that class who can teach the way they do and I'm so glad that God is using them. We get envious and we say, why can't I? Why can't I? When's it my turn? And you see how it becomes the enemy of what's the wise, of what needs to happen. And what God has in store, envy causes us to say, why him? Why not me? I'm as good as they are. It's not fair. Envy shifts our focus from serving God to serving ourselves. And, and, and the desire to serve ourselves is where self-destructive behavior begins. And it's the same with selfish ambition. And, and please notice that, that James doesn't condemn ambition. He condemns selfish ambition. He qualifies it. He says it's not ambition that's wrong, it's selfish ambition that's wrong because there's a difference. Selfish ambition does not inspire you to do great things for the God's glory. Instead, it drives you to try to do something glitzy for the glory of yourself. Selfish ambition thrives on attention and power and recognition and reward. 
I want people to notice me. I want people to clap for me. I want people to to give me that recognition and nobody else. I'm the one who deserves it. And And it's never about serving others. It's always about serving myself. It's about what's, what am I going to get from this? And, and when you start serving yourself, you divorce yourself from wisdom, James is going to tell us. He says, you can't have it both ways. And James says that wisdom is expressed in what? Humility. And selfish ambition is loud and boastful. And wisdom is quiet and it's humble. Sometimes it doesn't lead to great honors and great acclamation from a worldly standpoint. But it's what wisdom from God is. It says, I'm just going to do the right thing. And if you're wise, you don't have to toot your own horn. Your wisdom will make itself obvious. And that's because wisdom is what? Better seen than heard. Many of you know the name Lou Holtz football coach that, I mean, probably one of the greatest football coaches that's ever lived here in the United States, and and and, and just a remarkable guy. Uh, he's still alive, doesn't coach anymore, but from about the late 60s to, I, I think he retired in 2004, somewhere around there, um, he, he coached, uh, I think it was six or seven schools, I mean, you know, Division One type of football schools, and... Um, and he never went to a school that was coming off of a winning season. He always went to a school that had a losing season because schools that have losing seasons have a tendency to fire their coaches, their head coaches, and so it's easier to find a job that way, I guess. And so he always went to, to schools that had a, a losing season. Um, but he's the only coach to take six different schools to bowl games and the only coach to finish the season with a top 20 ranking at four different schools, and he won national championship, and he's Ninth, uh, I think he was ninth or, or so on the overall win list of, of head coaches uh, ever. Uh, but you know what's significant about him? What I always liked about him is that he never talked big. He wasn't a big talker, uh, at least not to media he wasn't. Uh, when, he, when he took his last job at the University of South Carolina, uh, who by then had a really long losing tradition, uh, uh, he, he came there as their head coach and... Um, and 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 he didn't he didn't come boasting about all of his achievements in the past and he didn't tell everyone about his great job that he was capable of doing because he certainly was capable of doing it um, he just did a great job and uh, in his second season they went seven and four and they beat Ohio State in the Outback Bowl and the next year they went eight and three and they beat the same school Ohio State again in a postseason bowl game. Um, he didn't have to brag about it. The results just spoke from themselves. And that's because what? What's our big idea? Wisdom is better seen than heard. Say that with me. Wisdom is better seen than heard. Thirdly, James tells us one more thing that we need to understand about wisdom, and that wisdom is best expressed by how you treat others. In the way that you treat others, you express the wisdom that God gives to you. Specifically, he says, it's our ability to get along with others. Listen to what he says in verse 17. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, 
full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Now, what James does is he uses in, in this one verse, he talks about wisdom and he, and he talks about how it expresses itself and he uses seven words or phrases to do that, to characterize wisdom. So, I'm going to finish out this morning real quickly here with the seven characteristics that James gives in this one verse. Uh, first of all, he says wisdom is pure. Um, and this is in contrast with that, that earthly wisdom uh, that he had previously described, the kind of wisdom that's motivated by selfish ambition and and envy. Uh, He says, instead, it's pure. It is the the kind of wisdom uh, that... that, that has a pure motivation. So he says, do you want wisdom? Then start by checking your motives. Why is it that you want wisdom? What do you think God wants to do with that? Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, by the way, blessed are what? The pure in heart, for they will see God. And so if I'm looking if I'm looking at life from God's perspective, then I have to see God, and the only people who see God are people who are pure in heart. And so I need to have that pureness. And so I understand that God's wisdom is always going to be pure. And and the more focused that you are in serving God and not yourself, the closer you are to walking in wisdom. So if I'm saying, this is how I want my life to be, I want it to be about me. This is how I want my, my family to be, I want it to be about me. This is how I want my church to be, I want it to be about me. Then wisdom is not going to have any part of that. But pureness says, what does God want my life to be? What does God want my job to be? What does God want my family to be? What does God want my church to be? Now I can walk in wisdom because that's what I want. I want God's wisdom. And it's always going to be about pure purity and it's always going to direct itself toward God, not toward me. Wisdom, he says, secondly, is peace-loving. It is peace-loving. The Greek word for peace that he uses, Irene, there, describes a right relationship between individuals and a right relationship uh, between an individual and God. So he says, essentially, wisdom finds a way to build bridges from one person to the next. That there's this bridge that is built between myself and God, and then that helps me build bridges to people who are around me. He says that wisdom is thirdly considerate. It is considerate. Some translations uh, use the word gentle there. So you might want to write in gentle. It is, it is considerate. It is also, it is, it is gentle. This is another way of saying that same thing. Um, the, the writer Barclay, the, the theologian Barclay, says the Greek word describes a person who knows when it is actually wrong to apply the strict letter of the law. That's being considerate. That's being gentle. That I I know what the strict letter of the law is, but maybe I don't need to apply that right now to somebody else. And when I was a teenager, growing up at First Baptist Church in Lemon Grove, uh, Bill Hawes was our. He came as our as our music and education director. And I loved Bill Haas. And his, he, had, he had a son that was a year older than me and a daughter that was my age. And so we were going through high school together. We were doing high school years together. Uh, and, and we had a lot of fun. And, and uh, one night, I have no idea what we've been doing, but, but he, he, he almost got us arrested. Um, 
me and his daughter and his son and and uh, and a couple other kids from the youth group were with him. And for whatever reason, he thought it would be a good idea if we toilet papered, if we teepeed uh, the truck of a member of our church. Now, the member of the church was a fireman in Lemon Grove, and and the fire department where the firehouse where he worked was just across the major road and up about a block from our church. So it's 10:30, 11 o'clock at night. He buys all the toilet paper, drops us off, and then takes off <laughs> and parks somewhere away, and he watches the policeman come into the parking lot. And we're busted. And we're looking around thinking, where'd Bill go? Two of them are thinking, where'd Dad go? You know, and he left us dry, high and dry out here to try, and this policeman, I mean, he had every right to bust us. And we're trying to explain, hey, this guy that we're toilet paper, and he goes to our church. He used to teach us when we were like in fifth and sixth grade in Sunday school. We love him. And besides that, one of the pastors of our church brought us here and dropped us off with the toilet paper. He's probably hanging out in another parking lot. Go look for him. You know, and, and he would have had every right to, to haul us into the police department and make our parents come and clean up the toilet paper, you know, and the mess and everything that we had done. But, but he didn't. The letter of the law was one thing, but he acted to us, I mean, he scared the daylights out of us, but, but there was a gentleness in that. There was consideration in that. And so I don't have my picture on a police blotter somewhere. And I'm, you know, go to the, I'm not over, you know, the 12 most wanted people at the post office. I don't think. Anyone, friends, can apply the strict letter of the law. That's easy. That only takes knowledge. Wisdom understands when it's time to make allowances. Understands when it's time to be considerate. Understands when it's time to be gentle. And so, wisdom... Is considerate. He says, "Wisdom is also submissive. It's submissive." Other translations use the word "reasonable." Wisdom is submissive. Wisdom is reasonable. The Greek word means able to be convinced. It is able to be convinced. In other words, it's the kind of person who doesn't think he's right or she's right all the time and is willing to listen to both sides of the story. Wisdom is full of mercy. And good fruit. So that sounds like two different things. It's full of mercy. It's full of good fruit. But he's using it in one phrase. It's full of mercy and good fruit. James connects these two terms because they need to be connected. In the Greek language that James was using, uh, mercy means literally pity for one who is suffering. So if I have mercy then I see a person who is suffering and I have pity for them. It, it touches my heart. It, makes, it, it, it catches my attention and, and it does something in me that, that says, you know what, they're, they're suffering and, and I need to maybe do something. But I can see a lot of people who are suffering and not care. I can see a lot of people and say, man, that's too bad. You need to go get well. You need to go get a job, whatever it is. I could, I, could, I could do that. Good fruit means, in Greek, 
that you're following up on the mercy with practical help. You see somebody who is suffering, and out of that, you produce good fruit that helps them. You help them get on their feet again. You do something about that. So wisdom is not, man, you're suffering, go get well. Wisdom is, you're suffering, I see that. How can I help you? What can I do right now that's practical? What kind of good fruit is going to come out of my life? Not their life, out of my life to help them. That's why they're connected. Because the good fruit is that. See, we think good fruit is, oh, well, see, I produce all this good fruit in my life. I'm a nice person. I'm loving. I'm, I give money. and, and all. That's not the kind of good fruit he's talking about. He's talking about the good fruit that gets my hands dirty in another person's life. Where I get down and I, and I start to help them and, and it takes me out of my comfort zone. And so that's what he's talking about. He says that wisdom is also impartial. It is impartial. That, that re- it refers to treating everyone equally without favoritism. Um, Ever, Barbara and I were talking about this yesterday about people that that write music and um, and I, I think maybe that is something that she'd heard yesterday at the at the conference uh, with Beth Moore, but uh, you know who write Christian music or who write who write literature, a book or something, and they'll say I you know I and they send it to her because they want it to get published and and. Uh, you know, and, and, and I've heard this before, but yeah, you know how hard it is to get a song on a radio station, to get it played? If you write a song and you, you, get it, you make a CD and, and you send it to a radio station because you want them to play it, you know, a top 40 radio station or like K-Love or something like that for Christian music, how are you going to get it on there? You know what, what, what they'll tell you at a radio station? They'll tell you, we would much prefer and we will almost always play a, a mediocre song from a well-known, established artist before we'll ever play anything from somebody who's unknown, even though it sounds wonderful. That's not impartial, is it? That's not treating everyone the same, but that's the world that we live in. Uh, and that's how it is with politics. Um, you know, we just voted. Well, some people voted. Quarter of people voted in the, in the state, maybe or less. But, uh, you know, a lot of people, when, when people vote, they, they go right down a party line, don't they? It's, you know, um, you know whatever it is, RRR, DDD, whatever the others are, you know, whatever, I, I vote that, or I, I get those things in the mail that says, this is what everybody, this party's going to vote on, vote this way. And, you know, it's kind of like, okay, I'll just do that without ever engaging my brain. And, and and we we do that and um, and wisdom discerns the different and it treats every situation and every idea and every and ever and everything individually impartially he begins to look at that he says that's what wisdom is and wisdom is sincere he says and that word means without hypocrisy it's without hypocrisy uh, and we all know what hypocrites are. Um, and and it's and a wise person doesn't pretend to be something that that he or she isn't. Uh, they're honest with others about who they are, and those are the characteristics of wisdom that that James says. This is when you ask for wisdom. This is what you're going to get, and and this is how they're to be used. Those are the characteristics. And so if you try to use them in any other kind of a of a context, it's not going to work. If if you if you want wisdom so that you can discriminate against somebody, if you want wisdom so that you can 
belittle them. If you want wisdom uh, so that you can so that you can continue to hide being a hypocrite, uh, or or if you're not if you want wisdom but you're not willing to to be open minded then about about what's going on, then don't bother to ask because it's not going to come to you. It's not it's not what you're going to receive and it's not going to work. So you know we often think that wisdom is is something that's primarily going to benefit me as an individual. Um, you know, if I have wisdom, I'm going to make good financial decisions, and then I'm going to have more money. Or uh, if I make good business decisions, if I'm a business owner uh, or business person, then I'm going to be successful. Um, if I make good parenting decisions, I'm going to be proud of my children. You ever feel like that? <laughs> if, I, if I make right decisions down the road, I'm not going to be embarrassed to say this is my kid. And But that's about me, isn't it? That's that stuff. Those are those are me issues, aren't they? Because that's only part of it. If you have wisdom, you will make good financial decisions. That's true, and you won't be broke all the time, which will give you an opportunity to be generous with others. All of a sudden, maybe the reason why I want to make good financial reasons is not just so I have money, but maybe so I'll have money so that I can help other people, so that I can be just extravagantly generous. And that's what I want. Uh, <clears throat> if if I make good decisions, um, you know, I'm not going to be broke all the time. If I if I make good decisions parenting, um, then it's true. My children will probably be children I can be proud of. But but parenting isn't about me. And and if I have the wisdom, I'll make parenting decisions that will benefit my children most of all, and result in them becoming people of good character and and give them opportunity to build great lives for for themselves and to touch other lives uh, as that begins to spread out. And your wisdom benefits you incidentally, but primarily it benefits other people. And that's how God intends wisdom to be. Wisdom is, expresses itself in how you treat others, and more specifically, how you serve others. That's because, say it with me one more time, wisdom is better seen than heard. You don't sound like you mean it anymore. Say it with me like you mean it. Wisdom is better seen than heard. James concludes this section by saying in verse 18, Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. You want wisdom? You can have it. All you have to do is ask. And, and God will give it to you, but here's what he'll show you to do with it. He says you'll use it to build bridges between you and others between one person and the next, between others and God. And that's because wisdom is more than a noun, it's a verb. It is an action word in God's vocabulary. It really becomes a verb. It is something that you, not something that you have, it is something that you do. It's something, it's not something that you hear, it's something that you see and you act on it. And so a wise person devotes themselves to building bridges of peace. And that's the principle. That's the factor, the wisdom factor. And so he would tell us to practice the principle of wisdom. Practice the principle of wisdom. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we praise you for your love and your grace. Thank you that you, that you care about us. When we're so unloving, when we're so unlike you, you still love us. 
And so today, Father, we pray for that one who might be here today who's never put their faith in Jesus Christ to be their Savior and Lord. Who would say, you know, I I don't quite have all the pieces in place, maybe, but I'd be interested in finding out more about Jesus and his love for me. More about Jesus and why he would even love me. And more about Jesus and what his love can do in my life. Father, we thank you that they will discover that that you loved them before time began with an eternal love that has never ceased and never will cease. And that Jesus came 2,000 years ago to the cross at Calvary and paid the price for their sin so that we might be able to experience your mercy. So, Father, we pray that they might trust Jesus to be their Savior and Lord, to forgive their sins, to come into their life today and give them eternal life. Most in here have already done that. We've made that decision. Why we struggle. We struggle with this thing called wisdom. If we even think we can have it, we think it ought to be for us. It's always going to be about us. And James comes along and turns that upside down on us. He says it's just incidentally about us. It's always about others. It's about how our lives will impact other people. Are we a blessing to them? Are we encouraging them? Are we building them up? Are we helping them to see and connect with Jesus? So, Father, give us the internal fortitude, the courage, the guts to ask for your wisdom. But not so that we'll have knowledge, but so that we can do your will. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. And